Hi, everybody. It's Derek, and this is your Foreign Exchanges and World News Roundup for Tuesday, April 18th, 2023. Uh, there are a few anniversaries of note on April 17th, 1895. Representatives of the Empire of Japan and China's Qing Dynasty signed the Treaty of Shimonoseki, which ended the First Sino-Japanese War. The treaty obliged the Qing to renounce Chinese claims on Korea to cede Taiwan and islands in the Taiwan Strait to Japan to pay reparations and to establish basically most favored nation trade status with Japan. Uh, there was another stipulation uh, about control of the Liaodong Peninsula. Uh, the European states, France, Germany, and Russia, intervened uh, to force Japan to drop that provision and give up control of the, the peninsula. Uh, the newly independent Korea, of course, quickly fell under Japan's sway. This brought uh, the Japanese into Russia's orbit and led to the 1904-1905 Russo-Japanese War, which is a whole other story, suffice it to say, that did not go the way the Russians expected. Uh, on April 17, 1975, the Cambodian Civil War ended uh, the, when the Khmer Rouge captured Phnom Penh uh, and ousted the short-lived Khmer Republic. The Khmer Rouge briefly restored the Cambodian monarchy before embarking on one of the most brutal genocides in history. Upwards of 25% of the Cambodian population was killed through a mix of mass executions, forced labor, and other more indirect forms of violence. That genocide finally ended when Vietnam invaded Cambodia in 1979 and removed the Khmer Rouge from power. Uh, and on April 18, 1897, the Ottoman Empire declared war on Greece, marking the official start of the Greco-Turkish War, which had actually begun uh, about a month earlier when the Greek military sent uh, a force to the island of Crete to support a rebellion against Ottoman rule. Uh, the war was a very lopsided affair. The Ottomans not only badly outnumbered the Greeks, they were using repeating rifles. The Greeks were still using single-shot uh, firearms, so the Ottomans uh, were in much stronger position, both in terms of men and materiel. Uh, they won a fairly quick victory by mid-May, unfortunately for them. Uh, this was only step one of winning a war in the late 19th in Europe in the late 19th century. Not only if you weren't already a great power yourself, not only did you have to win the war on the battlefield, but then you had to convince the actual great powers to allow you to keep your victory. And the great powers in this case uh, forced the Ottomans to accept only a few small border concessions. The, the territory, they conquered substantial amount of Greek territory during the war. They were forced to give it all back. Uh, they were even forced to recognize Crete as autonomous, uh, albeit still under limited Ottoman control. Again, even though they had won the war, uh, they were forced to accept this somewhat humiliating, uh, lopsided peace that was much more favored toward Greek uh, Greece. Obviously, Cretan autonomy uh, was not going to last very long. It was just a, a stage in transitioning the island to Greek control. So uh, just an interesting case study, I think, the whole the, the conflict, which is, again, not long, not very major, but it's an interesting case study in what it was like for a sub-great power in 19th century Europe, where, again, you couldn't just win the war. You had to convince the great powers to let you win the peace. And in this case, the Ottomans weren't able to do that. Uh, so moving on to the news. In the Middle East, in Syria, Saudi Foreign Minister Prince Faisal bin Farhan al-Saud Sa al uh, became the latest and most significant regional luminary to call on Syrian President Bashar al-Assad on Tuesday. 
He is the first Saudi foreign minister to visit Damascus since the two countries mostly severed their relationship in the early days of the Syrian civil war. There's still been no indication that Assad will be invited to next month's Arab League summit in Riyadh, but the Syrian-Saudi relationship, at least, is trending toward normalization. Uh, in Lebanon, the Biden administration on Tuesday blacklisted 52 individuals and entities linked to a man named Nazem Ahmad, uh, or Nazem Ahmad, an alleged Hezbollah financier uh, who was sanctioned by the U.S. in 2019 and is now, as of Tuesday, facing U.S. federal criminal charges. Uh, the charges uh, are, are involve uh, essentially Ahmad's efforts, allegedly, to evade those 2019 sanctions. The U.K. government also blacklisted Ahmad on Tuesday. Uh, his whereabouts are unknown. He's not actually in U.S. custody, but he has been charged. Uh, in Israel, Palestine, Israeli forces wounded at least six people during an arrest raid in the West Bank city of Jenin on Tuesday. Uh, in East Jerusalem, meanwhile, uh, two people were, were wounded, two Israelis were wounded by an apparent Palestinian gunman who shot up a vehicle in the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood. Uh, Israeli authorities are still reportedly looking for that shooter. In Qatar, the UAE and the Qatari government uh, are reportedly on the verge of reopening their mutual embassies, which would be fully restore uh, relations that they've been slowly rebuilding for several months now. The UAE was, of course, one of the quartet of countries, including Bahrain, Egypt, and Saudi Arabia, that broke off relations with Qatar back in 2017 over a range of grievances. That episode officially came to an end in early 2021, but the process of getting back to a pre-2017 relationship has been ongoing. UAE President Mohammed bin Zayed al-Nahyan visited Qatar in December, uh, which signaled that the two countries were close to full rapprochement. There is no official timetable for the grand reopenings, the grand embassy reopenings, but speculation is that they'll be operating again with ambassadors full bore by mid-June. Uh, in Asia and Afghanistan, according to The Guardian, the United Nations officials are preparing to pull up stakes and leave that country altogether next month, except in the unlikely event that they're able to convince Taliban leaders to walk back their decision to bar Afghan women from working for UN aid operations. The ban adds significant logistical complications to the UN's work and continuing to operate in a country whose government has barred women from virtually any aspect of public life could carry reputational risks in terms of the UN's ability to raise humanitarian funds more generally. The Afghan populace, which is heavily dependent on humanitarian relief in a country that Western sanctions have largely cut off from the global economy, will pay heavily if the UN does withdraw. Uh, in Thailand, I'm sure this is not indicative of any sort of systematic global trend or anything, but much of Asia, you might be interested to know, is currently under a crippling heat wave that has hit Thailand particularly hard. Uh, this is from the Washington Post. I'll read you a couple of paragraphs here. April and May are typically Thailand's hottest months, but the heat, fuel, but, but the heat fueled the country's all-time hottest temperature late last week. On Friday, Thailand surpassed 113 degrees Fahrenheit, or 45 degrees Celsius, for the first time ever, topping out at 114 degrees or 45.4 degrees Celsius in the town of Tak amid the country's New Year's celebration. Residents were advised to stay indoors to avoid heat stroke as several all-time heat records were set in the country. ArabiaWeather.com, a private weather company based in Jordan, reported that Thailand's previous all-time record high 
was 112 degrees or 44.6 degrees Celsius, set in 2016 in Mehong Son province. Uh, other all-time records reached Friday in Thailand included 112 degrees or 44.6 degrees Celsius at Tak Airport and 110 degrees or 43.5 degrees Celsius in Phetchabun. Uh Quote, Thai authorities have issued health warnings as meteorologists estimate temperatures of up to 122 degrees in the sun, end quote, according to ArabiaWeather.com, which also reported that smog, quote, has caused thousands of people to develop respiratory problems and sore throats in recent weeks, end quote. Temperatures, uh, this is me again, temperatures are also skyrocketing in, among other places, Bangladesh, China, India, Laos, Myanmar, Nepal, Turkmenistan, and Uzbekistan, and probably all places in between. Those were the ones mentioned in the article. Uh, again, I'm sure these are all uh, isolated, siloed off incidents with no connection to any broader phenomenon. In China, the Chinese Foreign Ministry on Tuesday criticized U.S. claims that two men who were arrested in New York the previous day had set up a secret Chinese police station in the U.S. According to U.S. authorities, the two men in question, who are both U.S. nationals, ran a business that ostensibly helped Chinese nationals living in the U.S. with services like renewing their Chinese ID documents. This business was allegedly a front for an operation meant to locate Chinese dissidents. In a statement, the ministry insisted that, quote, the relevant claims have no factual basis and there is no such thing as an overseas police station, end quote. Uh, in Africa, in Sudan, the Sudanese military and the Rapid Support Forces paramilitary unit, who have been battling one another for four days now, agreed to a 24-hour humanitarian ceasefire that was to have begun at 6 p.m. local time on Tuesday. As far as I can tell, that ceasefire never materialized. Witnesses in Khartoum and Omdurman reported airstrikes and artillery fire in both cities shortly after the ceasefire was supposed to have gone into effect. Each side has unsurprisingly accused the other of breaking the agreement. Agreement. It is still possible the ceasefire will kick in at some point. Maybe it will have kicked in. I'm trying to be optimistic here uh, by the time you listen to this, uh, but the outlook doesn't seem terribly good. Uh, I haven't seen any updates since Monday in terms of casualties, and really any casualty figures at this point are likely to be very tentative and I would say wildly inaccurate, uh, given the diffuse nature of the conflict and the difficulty of compiling information from across Sudan under these circumstances. The heaviest fighting has been concentrated in Khartoum and its sister cities, Omdurman and Bahri, but there are reports of clashes nationwide, including in the Darfur region. Needless to say, there's little to no chance of humanitarian relief making its way to civilians, nor of evacuating civilians from the areas of heaviest fighting without an extended ceasefire. For now, at least, this conflict remains a highly personalized clash between the two key figures in Sudan's ruling junta, military commander Abdel Fattah al-Burhan and RSF commander Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo. Uh, their dispute over whether the RSF should come under military command or remain independent has compounded their competition for status in whatever government emerges if or when the junta transitions to something else, a transition that now seems farther away than ever. Uh, and their dueling international connections have also contributed to their rivalry and could fuel an expansion of the fighting. Degallo's ties to Russia, and specifically the Wagner Group, probably haven't endeared him to the U.S. government, though Washington's interactions with Sudan in recent years have been limited mostly to counterterrorism and encouraging Khartoum to implement its Abraham Accord deal with Israel, and consequently the U.S. likely doesn't have a tremendous amount of leverage here, uh, except through some proxies like Egypt and Saudi Arabia. 
In Mali, a landmine blast wounded two UN peacekeepers in the Mopti region on Tuesday. There is no indication as to who planted the explosive. In Europe and Russia, the Russian foreign ministry summoned ambassadors from Canada, the UK, and the US on Tuesday to complain about their criticism of the tri trial of Russian political activist Vladimir Karamorza. A Russian court sentenced Karamorza to 25 years in prison on Monday on treason charges that several Western officials have characterized as politically motivated. The three ambassadors publicly criticized the, the verdict on Monday, prompting Russian officials to complain of their interference in internal Russian affairs. In Ukraine, there are a number of items here. Russian President Vladimir Putin and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky both made visits near the front line on Tuesday, with Putin meeting Russian military commanders in Kherson Oblast and visiting another Russian facility in Luhansk Oblast, while Zelensky spent time in the town of Adivka in Donetsk Oblast. According to Oleksandr Sirsky, uh, the commander of the Ukrainian army or the Ukrainian ground forces, as they refer to them, Russian forces have escalated their air and artillery strikes on Bakhmut. Uh, elsewhere, ship inspections under the Black Sea Grain Initiative, which Moscow had blocked earlier this week, we mentioned this in yesterday's newsletter, have resumed. Uh, it's unclear why the Russians started blocking the inspections in the first place. All Russian officials have said is that there was some sort of procedural issue that has now been resolved. On a related note, the Polish government on Tuesday agreed to allow overland Ukrainian grain shipments to transit through Poland. Uh, again, as we mentioned in yesterday's newsletter, Warsaw has imposed a ban on Ukrainian grain shipments destined for Poland. It had also imposed a ban on grain shipments transiting through Poland, but it has changed that uh, or lifted that ban now. Uh, presumably, uh, those shipments will go will be uh, tightly watch to make sure that nothing falls off the truck, shall we say, uh, and winds up in, in Polish markets. Uh, this is all because the flood of cheap Ukrainian grain is undercutting prices for farmers in Poland and other parts of Europe. Poland, Hungary, and Slovakia now all have bans in place on the importation of Ukrainian grain, and Romania may be next. Farmers in Czechia, meanwhile, whose government says it is not considering an import ban, say that Ukrainian products are crowding them out of European export markets. Uh, on to the Americas. In Brazil, uh, Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva welcomed Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov to Brasilia on Monday, which will undoubtedly make the folks in Washington happy. Uh, Lula is apparently irritating the U.S. foreign policy establishment by insolently acting as though he were the head of state of an independent nation rather than the manager of a U.S. subsidiary, uh, as I guess we view Brazil. Uh, during, the, during a recent trip that took him to China and the UAE, Lula suggested that the U.S. was, quote, unquote, encouraging, can you imagine, uh, the conflict in Ukraine and said that Ukraine bears some responsibility for the war, remarks that White House spokesperson John Kirby deemed, quote, deeply problematic, end quote. Uh, but Lula has also criticized the Russian invasion, to be clear, something he did again on Tuesday during an event with Romanian President Klaus Johannes. He's also offered to try to mediate an end to the conflict, though the Ukrainian government has not exactly embraced that offer. 
in Ecuador, facing potential impeachment over embezzlement charges, Ecuadorian President Guillermo Lasso on Tuesday suggested that he would dissolve Congress if it moves forward with that process. Ecuador's Supreme Court has given a green light to potential impeachment hearings, so the only question is whether Lasso has enough legislative support to block them. Under Ecuadorian law's mutual death provision, this is apparently what they call it, Lasso does have the authority to dissolve Congress and call a snap election, but he is obliged at the same time to call a snap election for the presidency as well. So he would be uh, effectively putting himself out of work. Uh, in Nicaragua, the government on Tuesday declared that it will not accept the credentials of the European Union's ambassador-designate, uh, Fernando Pons. Uh, this decision was apparently prompted by an EU statement marking the five-year anniversary of large-scale protests against Nicaraguan President Daniel Ortega that, among other things, called for a, quote, return to the rule of law, end quote. Nicaraguan authorities expelled the EU's previous ambassador back in September. In Mexico, the Mexican Supreme Court ruled on Tuesday that President Andres Manuel López Obrador violated the Constitution last year when he transferred control of his National Guard unit to the Mexican military. The constitutional change that liquidated Mexico's former police force and replaced it with the Guard positioned the new unit within the Secretariat of Security and Civilian Protection. The court agreed with AMLO's opponents that another constitutional change would be required to move it to the Secretariat of National Defense. AMLO, who in general has significantly expanded the Mexican military's role in domestic law enforcement, contends that putting the guard under the military would minimize the sort of corruption that infested the former federal police. It's unlikely that he has enough votes in Congress at this point to pass another constitutional change. Uh, elsewhere, there is a, a piece in the New York Times that I uh, linked to. I'm not going to read you the excerpt, but um, it's an investigative report dealing with the Pegasus spyware ca- scandal and Mexico, the Mexican government's role way back in 2011 uh, as the first government to engage the services of the Pegasus spyware to spy on people who, for example, were politically inconvenient in some way or another. Uh, so it's it's an interesting piece, and you might want to check that out if you're interested in the Pegasus, the ongoing Pegasus scandal. And finally, um, the, the, technically, I guess, under the United States, uh, Dan, Danny Bessner, uh, my co-host on American Prestige, uh, and sometimes columnist here at Foreign Exchanges, has written a piece for The Nation looking at the state of liberalism through the lens of the uh, famous end-of-history author Francis Fukuyama. Um, I'll just read you a couple of paragraphs here. Uh, it's re- it's partly a review of Fukuyama's recent book, Liberalism and Its Discontent. So I'll just uh, read you a couple of paragraphs here. Fukuyama's recent Liberalism and Its Discontents is part of this liberal counteroffensive, counteroffensive against uh, reactionary, whatever, whatever, uh, As a thinker, Fukuyama is the most distinguished of liberal apologists, and if anyone could make the positive case for liberalism, it's him. But liberalism and its discontents is not especially illuminating, repeating tired criticisms of the left and the right that don't add much to scholarly analysis or political conversation. In essence, Fukuyama believes that embracing centrist liberalism was and remains the mature thing to do. While adolescents and fools endorse politics of radical change, adults accept that the limited reforms of liberalism are the best humanity can hope for. Though Fukuyama is willing to acknowledge many of liberalism's limitations, he cannot envision a world beyond it. 
The tragedy of our times is that he doesn't really need to, because the argument he proffered in the end of history has proved correct. No ideology has risen to challenge liberalism, whether in the United States or elsewhere. Fukuyama and the other defenders of liberalism thus don't actually have to be that persuasive. Liberalism reigns, and it looks set to do so for into the foreseeable future. History, for the moment at least, remains at its end. Uh, so check that piece out. Uh, it's quite good. And um, I guess on that note, that's all for us tonight. Thanks to all of you for reading and or listening to the newsletter. And uh, thanks especially to those of you who are foreign exchange subscribers. Uh, if you are a paid foreign exchange subscriber, that goes double for making this newsletter possible. And if you're not, please consider it because it is, again, uh, the best and only really way to keep foreign exchanges going and to uh, help continue to expand the pie, add more writers and uh, do kind of new and different things here. Uh, the more support we have, the more uh, we're able to try things like that. So um, with that in mind, uh, until next time, take care and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.